Our Old Testament lesson this morning is from 1 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 5, and it is a weird one. It just is. That's all there is to it. I'm going to give a little bit of brief context before we go into this, and I'm not going to comment on it at all afterwards, so (laughs) figure this one out on your own. Now, this is uh, a time in the history of the people of Israel where they're in the land and they do not yet have a king, and there's still this understanding that God is their king, at least to some extent. I mean, that's definitely the idea, though very few people have been living that way. And, of course, this is putting him in conflict, you know, the uh, God of Israel in conflict with, well, what about all these gods of these foreign nations who were supposed to have been driven out of the land, and yet that didn't happen either. So there's a bunch of those still in the land, too. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we see that uh, the Philistines actually have captured the Ark of the Covenant of God, that box that goes uh, before the people of Israel into battle, the one that is sort of this symbolic representation of the presence of God. And uh, so we will see what happens after they have captured that ark um, and where they decide to put it, which, my goodness. Okay, before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We ask that as we read your word today, that you would give us... um, understanding, that you would give us uh, eyes to see you for who you are and the ways that you want to reveal yourself to us, how that we would know you better, that we would uh, come to love and trust you more uh, today and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First Samuel 5, verses 1 through 5. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Turning then to New Testament, our New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46, which will be found on page 1545 in uh, the Pew Bibles. This, again, is something maybe not expected, but maybe not quite as weird as that last one. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. should sound familiar after the children's sermon. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say, To those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, 
and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this morning... I want to tell you a uh, kind of a gospel summary, and this is something that I have heard from someone somewhere at some time, and I have spent hours trying to track it down, and I can't find it. So if anybody knows where this comes from or has heard somebody explain it along these lines before, please let me know. I would like to track it down. And it's not that it's nowhere. It's that it's a lot of places, and I just, anyway. Um, the idea is that the... Uh, way of summarizing the gospel, you can do kind of in four words. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the idea is that every one of those words is significant and important and means something. And so we look at, you know, that first word, Jesus, and we're talking about the historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who was born of Mary, the one who uh, lived and taught and performed miracles, the one who was, as we say in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, and the one who was raised again to life. That Jesus. Christ, talked about before, is the, this Greek word that means the same thing as the Hebrew word Messiah. It just means the anointed one, the one who's been chosen. This is the one that had been predicted and prophesied from all through the Old Testament. And so we're not just talking about uh, some guy named Jesus who did amazing things, but this guy named Jesus who did amazing things is the one who had been prophesied for hundreds, thousands of years that God would sin. Um, and then, of course, Lord. Lord is one where uh, it's this idea of being the ruler, the master, the king. We skipped over one on purpose, and that is because a lot of times people are okay with the Jesus, Christ, and Lord, (laughs) but we tend to think about it either in the past tense or the future tense, as Jesus Christ was Lord, kind of like how Caesar was Lord, but now he's dead, and now we have a new Lord, those kinds of things. Or people will look at Jesus and say, Jesus Christ will be Lord. And so we look forward to the day where one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But we say, but not yet. That hasn't happened yet. And it's true that not every knee yet has 
confessed this truth. But it still is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is one of the things that the resurrection is, is all about, is that Jesus Christ is Lord today. That he was, he is, and he will be. And so when we are looking at uh, Christ the King Sunday, what does this mean? And that is going to be our question for all of us. What does it mean for us today that Jesus Christ is Lord? Another way of asking yourself that question is, how would my life be different if he weren't Lord? Or would it be? Or then again, how would it be different if he is? And that'll be our, our question we will, uh, we will end with. <laughs> Nothing like starting with the ending, right? But as we look at this question, there are other questions that tend to come up. Especially, wait a second, if Jesus Christ is Lord, then how come bad stuff keeps happening? And if you haven't been paying attention, bad stuff keeps happening. So let's take a look at Acts chapter 12. We have, um, we've been looking in the book of Acts for some time. We are going to take a break starting next week. We're going to do something totally different for Advent. I'll explain that next week. But in Acts, um, starting out, let me just I remind you of this part. Peter on Pentecost gets up and explains to everyone uh, the end of his sermon about what is going on. He says to everyone, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. That is, Christ. Um, That was Peter's original message. That was the message of the church throughout, that Jesus is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, So now we get uh, to chapter 12. A lot of stuff's been going on. And it says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover read quite a bit more here in a second, but let's just pause. This is the situation. We have seen people going out and proclaiming Jesus wherever they go. We've seen that there was some persecution happening uh, earlier on, but as they have spread, they have continued to preach this message. We haven't seen persecution quite like this again, but now here we have, um, we have someone else being killed for their faith. And from kind of a worldly perspective. Here again is one of those times where we say, well, we thought Jesus was Lord, but apparently Herod is Lord. Because here James is following Jesus, and here Herod is wanting to stop him. And it looks like Herod wins. I think Herod has more power. Herod must be the real king. And that is what the worldly perspective is on this situation. That is not the biblical perspective <laughs> on the situation. The church will continue to announce, even in the face of this sort of thing, that Jesus is Lord. And so how in the world 
Do you reconcile those two things? Well, uh, let's keep going. This next verse is one of the hints. We have Peter also being in prison. James is killed. Peter's in prison. But now it says, uh, verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This is one of those verses that's sort of the, the hint that maybe there's something more going on than what meets the eye. This is what you see at the uh, Genesis 37 when Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt and you're going, oh, well, this is just going from bad to worse to worse in his life. And then it has this kind of concluding line, oh, but when he gets to Egypt, they sell him to Potiphar, who happens to be, you know, one of Pharaoh's officials, the, the captain of the guard. So we have this positioning of Joseph in just the right place at just the right time, just when we thought everything was going wrong. We don't yet know what it means, but there's a, a meanwhile, here's what's going on. Another one of those meanwhile verses is in the end of Ruth chapter 1, where Ruth and Naomi are coming back and um, their husbands have all died. Naomi's sons have died. While they were away, they come home, and everything looks like it's just bad, bad, bad. And it says, but you know, they, they arrived home just as the barley harvest was beginning. And if you know the rest of the story, that's a really important part of how God is going to change their future and, in fact, the future of the world during that particular barley harvest. And so we have these moments that are sort of tucked in there that don't necessarily make a lot of sense when you're first reading through until you see, wait a second, just when everything looks bad, 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 it's like, oh, but there is this. So just hold on to that for now, and we'll see how God is maybe working through another bad situation. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now I'm just going to read a lot. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals. And Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, 
and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards in order that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they demanded they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff in this one. And we're not going to go through all the weird stuff. Um, There's some weird stuff. But what we want to do is take a look at a few of the things, particularly what's happening at the beginning and what's happening at the end. And like I said at the beginning, is this idea from a worldly perspective of Herod sure seems to be the king. He is the one who is the Lord, and Jesus must not be, because bad stuff is happening to Jesus' followers. And Herod is just getting away with it just fine. And then by the time you get to the end of this section, the guards are dead. Herod is dead and eaten by worms, which is gross. But Peter is free, and the word of God is continuing to spread and to flourish. Now ask yourself, who's the king? Who is really the Lord over this whole situation? And even when James is being killed and Peter is in prison, do we still believe Jesus is Lord. I don't know how things are going to go. I don't know what is going to happen with Peter in particular. I mean, we see what happened to James. He got killed. We don't know what's going to happen to Peter yet. We don't know what's going to happen with Herod yet. We don't know what's going to happen with these guards yet. We read this story, though, and we see God is still at work. Jesus is still the Lord of his church and over all. So the question for us is, when we are in those situations, can we still say that? That Jesus Christ is Lord, even when it sure looks like there are other powers um, that are winning. Now, let's go back just a second. Because there are a few people who might have said that, but who didn't really expect it to be the case in the way that it turned out. One of those was Peter. Did you notice that? Peter is in prison, and he is released miraculously from prison, and as it's happening, he doesn't believe it. Did you notice that? As it's happening, he is going out of prison. He is leaving the, uh, the guards behind, and he's like, this is the strangest vision I've ever had. I mean, he's had some strange visions. We saw a few weeks ago the sheet being lowered from heaven. He's familiar with visions. But here he is walking out of prison, and he's thinking he's having a vision. And it's not until later, when he's you know, far past all that, he's like, you know what? I think I actually am out of prison. This isn't something that I'm supposed to interpret spiritually some other way. I'm... Jesus got me out. And so then he goes to the house where people have been earnestly praying for Peter to not get killed, but maybe even be released from prison. 
And when he knocks on the door, well, Rhoda, of course, is uh, in a state of shock and doesn't answer the door, which is always funny. Um, but when she goes back and tells everybody, did you notice they don't believe it either? They don't believe that God would do the very thing they've been praying for? <laughs> they've been praying for Peter to be released. Rhoda comes and says, he's been released. God has answered our prayers. He's standing right at the door. And they're like, nah. Well, what did you think was going to happen? So we have people, Peter and those who are praying, who are not believing what God is doing as he's doing it. I think we find ourselves in similar situations too. I mean, how much how much evidence does it take? How much do we need to see to believe that God really is at work, that Jesus really is the Lord, that he really is the king over the church and over everything? Now, I think one of the reasons we have trouble with this is the same reason that they might have been having trouble with this, which is James just got killed. And that's a big problem we have, too, is you look at something like this and say, wait a second, wait, 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 wait a second. It is great that Peter got released. It is great that he uh, was able to be set free and go back, and they all had this joyous reunion, but James didn't get that. Why not? And it, it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem like the way it should have gone. It seems like, no, 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 if everybody was praying for James, he should be set free. The short answer is, I don't know. I don't know why James dies and Peter goes free. I don't know. But the good news is that Joe McGee is not Lord. So I don't have to understand why James dies and Peter goes free. What I have to do is remember that Jesus Christ is Lord and trust that even when it doesn't make sense to me, he has a lot more information than I have. And it's also very good to remember that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that means he's Lord over everything, and that means even all the evil that happens in the world is on a leash. It can only go so far, and it can only go as far as can be turned back around later. That doesn't take away that it's painful and hard and actually evil now. But we know that just because evil is doing something doesn't mean evil's winning. And of course, one of the, they're all through the Bible you see evidence of that same sort of pattern, but most explicitly you see it when Jesus is going to the cross. That is the day that is the darkest day of all, where evil at most seems to be winning, when God himself has come in the person of Jesus and he gets killed. And we look back now and we say that was not evil winning. That was Jesus winning over evil. That's the pattern we see again and again. So how it is that that worked in, out in the life of James, who is killed in prison, I don't know. But I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he knows the answer to that question. And that's where we do walk by faith and we trust him in all the situations that we're facing.
I was uh, looking up uh, online and sort of children's lessons about this particular passage, uh, seeing him maybe doing a children's sermon along these lines, and I was really saddened <laughs> by how many of the lessons went something along the lines of, um, well, they skipped James entirely. They don't let you know that he died in prison. <laughs> it's all the story about Peter and how if you pray, that then God does these things, which, yes, God does answer prayer. I'm not sure that's the point of this particular story. That if you pray, God will release you from prison. I think that's what's gotten people into a lot of um, messed up relationship with the church and messed up relationship with God. If we have the expectation, I am Lord, and Jesus is my servant, so I will go to him and tell him what we need, <laughs> what I need. You got to let Peter go, and then he doesn't do it. Then I'd have a right to be upset. But if I am the servant and I am a part of his kingdom, and he is the one who knows what is good and right, and I go to him and I say, "You need to let Peter go," and he says, "Yeah, that is good. That is right. That's what we're going to do." If I say, "You got to let James go," he says, "No." I don't get upset. I have to be able to say, I don't get it. But I still trust you. I still believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, this, uh, so this is one of those passages where it sort of addresses some of those issues we have when it comes to what does it look like to follow Jesus as the one who is Lord. It means trusting him in those times where James is killed, and it means trusting him in times where Peter is released. It means believing that when we pray, he does hear our prayers, and it means that he does, not always, <laughs> uh, provide these miraculous escapes, but that he does do things like that. And sometimes he doesn't. And so the question for us is, as those who understand uh, the good news of Jesus Christ is Lord, how does that change our lives today? For one thing, I hope you understand that this is good news, even though initially it always sounds like bad news because for Jesus Christ to be the Lord, it means that we are not Lord. It means we don't get to do what Adam and Eve did and say, you know what, he says this, but I think I know better. I think my way makes more sense than his way. And you see what the problems <laughs> were caused by that and every other decision just like that that we still do today it always causes problem and pain and death. But Jesus, you look at the way he lived and you look at the things he taught and you look at what he actually did and does and we say, if there's anybody who ever should be the king, if there's anybody who ever should get to tell us what is right and wrong, it should be him. And so it is good news that the one person who should be the king is the king. That is the good news. But it also means we have to take off our own crowns and lay them down at his feet and say, you are the king not only over everything, but even over me and my heart and my life and my decision-making and the way that I spend my time and my, uh, my work time and my free time and my uh, money and my relationships and everything about our lives today.
So I come back and we finish with the same question we started with. If Jesus weren't the Lord, would your life be any different? Knowing that Jesus is the Lord, how is your life different? May we be those who live as a part of the kingdom of God, ruled and led and loved by King Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.